Hello there everyone and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones show on the Podbreed network and we work with our friends at the Narth subreddit as well. My name is Rob and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you'd like to, you can find us over on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT. That is at LongestNightGOT. I will leave a link to that page in the description as always anyway. Our title music provided by friend of the podcast, Edward Thomas. And you can find all of his available work in the description as well. Okay, um, to be honest, I know we're doing our season eight on the day series, uh, but I don't really have a story about this episode. I just watched it, went to bed, got up <laughs> the next day. <laughs> um, nice. But Lizzie, this week you found another strange, or you've been told about another strange Game of Thrones merchandise uh, tie-in. Yeah, a good friend of mine informs me that around the time of season eight, um, Game of Thrones did a collaboration with the guitar brand Fender. To release yeah. three exclusive Game of Thrones themed guitars. So you have for House Stark, there is a Telecaster of which uh, Dan Weiss says, the Telecaster seems like it's the instrument the good guy plays. It's the instrument the sheriff plays. The Starks have that integrity, that northern no-nonsense approach. And it feels like a Telecaster embodies that. You okay. just picture like <laughs> Sansa Stark pulling out a riffing solo on a Telecaster. I don't, I don't <sighs> uh, well, I mean, I own a Telecaster and a Stratocaster. Like yeah. the um, the little theme tune that plays, um, the the little the mini theme tune after this section and before we actually talk about the the main bulk of the episode, that's played on a Strat Squire that I own. Oh right, um, yeah. But I also have a, a Telecaster as well. Um, but I don't know when I'm fit, when I'm playing the Strat, which um, looking at this, I've just googled it. Is House Targaryen Stratocaster? Yeah, no, you're right. There's a House Targaryen Stratocaster, which pays tribute to the dynasty of the Targaryen bloodline with a dragon-scaled alder body coated in a unique stain, dragon glass black paint, and a thin lacquer finish. <laughs> um, oh God, I love marketing. It's... I love marketing. It's so funny sometimes <laughs> I, I need to read these dan weiss quotes because he says of the um the targaryen stratocaster if you're going to have a dragon guitar i think you're going to need a tremolo says weiss it seems like what daenerys targaryen would play if she had time to play guitar <laughs> i don't I, I i'm beginning to wonder whether it's dan weiss or dan weiss's agent slash management who have provided these quotes quotes Dan Weiss's non-union Mexican equivalent oh dear and there's a final one there's three yep there is the uh, the Lannister Jaguar which has you know has 24 karat gold leaf on this why oh my god um says Dan Weiss the Lannister Jaguar has a fancier feel I remember as a kid the Jaguar was the fender that had the most ornamentation and embellishment on it and I feel that the Lannisters are a very gold-placed house. Okay, do you know, that is the least ridiculous of the descriptions, because... It's the most ridiculous of the guitars, looking at it. It's like yeah, the Jaguar was not my favourite Fender design, yeah. I, I have to be honest. But, um, yeah. yeah, well, the thing is, Dan Wise, he does... I am giggling, but he does know his stuff about... Um, he does. ...music and stuff. Um, I mean, he he's very much into 
as we know from the extras that we've had on the show, he's very much into metal. Like there have been members of Mastodon in Game oh, of yeah, Thrones. Yeah. He is a Mastodon fan. He's recently had a film out on Netflix called Metal Lords, which is about a bunch of kids at high school who enter like a Battle of the Bands thing with um with, with, with a metal group that they form and stuff. So I, I don't doubt that he's into his music and that this is something that he might look at and go, oh, that's cool. And he may own one of these as like a special gift, but um, the quotes are quite funny, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah. much like, oh shit, I forgot to reply to that email. Quick, better come up with something in like yes, 15 yeah. minutes. Fender are knocking at the door, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just to mention... Um, Today, earlier today, literally like two hours ago, um, the trailer for House of the Dragon actually dropped Ooh. on YouTube and various platforms and stuff. No Targaryens playing um, Stratocasters oh. in the trailer, unfortunately, um, but it does look impressive and expensive. Uh, so yeah, it looks like it's starting with the budget that Game of Thrones had by its sixth or seventh season. So you know, make of that what you will. With regards to the design, I've no idea how they're going to fit all... There's only three dragons in this show. Um, yeah. And, well, they're going to have to cut some dragons out or they're going to have to uh, <laughs> make room in the budget for the double figures worth of dragons that are going to appear over the course Definitely. of that series. Yeah, We shall so, see. Cool. All right, then. Let's, uh, let's press on. <laughs> This week, we are going to be discussing Season 8, Episode 4 of Game of Thrones, entitled The Last of the Starks. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and directed by David Nutter. It was first broadcast on the 5th of May, 2019, three years ago today, to an audience of 11.8 million people. Lizzie, what do we make of Season 8, Episode 4? Um, I'm very surprised to see that this particular episode has re been received so negatively since it's broadcast. Like, sure, it, it you know it has its less good moments, which we will inevitably get into. But you know, like, okay, I wish we'd had a little bit more reflection on what was lost in the war with the Night King. And I'm sure listeners will get sick of me complaining about the extended episode length before long, but. Overall, I think it's a perfectly decent episode. I think it digs into, like, it's it almost goes backwards in a way to what characters, you know, what what were their their hopes and dreams before the war with the Night King? What were they aiming for before, you know, this threat of imminent destruction came along? And it it you know it does lead to some really interesting like character discoveries along the way. Yeah, I think that this one, traditionally for me, has not been one of my favourites, Okay, really. Um, it does find itself quite low down in my rankings, but I agree with you that the reaction to... Well, to be honest, if you're asking me, the reaction to the end is just overblown, full stop. Mm. Um but yeah, this uh, this episode in particular 
even people who were quite level-headed about the previous week and what happened in The Long Night Mm. really didn't go for this one. It was like their patience had snapped, and so this was the episode that they were going to take it out on. If yeah. you know what I mean, like I, I feel you. Yeah, yeah, it's strange. Like, I also wish that this episode asked, "What have we lost while battling mm. the army of the dead and the Night King?" And I think that if this episode is guilty of something that is an inherent problem in my eyes, it's that it doesn't do enough reflection. I agree. I think that. If this episode had been split into two, possibly three, Mm -hmm. I think that it's fair enough after wiping out the White Walkers to do another episode like A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, but have it be about what has just happened and like having a bunch of characters wandering around going like, I mean, this kind of happens anyway, but having a bunch of characters wandering around going like, what the fuck do I do now? Like, especially like John, whose whole thing was like bringing everybody together to fight the Night King. And now it's like mission accomplished. And it's like, what happens when the mission is accomplished? Yeah. Now you've got to deal with this elephant in the room, which is your parentage. Yeah. And so and I think that the episode does get to that. But I think the question that this episode asks is not necessarily what have we lost while battling the army of the dead. It's what have we learned from battling mm. the army of the dead. And it turns out very little. There's, the, <laughs> yeah. there's this line that Tyrion says. that, that, that My favourite bit of this episode is when Tyrion and Davos are talking to each other. And Davos says, the Lord of Light, like, we played his game, we fought his war, we won. And now he's just gone like he's just fucked off somewhere like was he ever real what's the purpose of all this and Tyrion just Mm. says like I don't think you would be happy to know the answer to that question and then Tyrion says my favorite line of the episode don't know if it's yours we'll find out later on we may have defeated them but we still have us to contend with and it's that kind of unlocks the secret of the episode which is that it's about a human lust for violence and war and i think it's quite a cynical and sad way to approach you know i I feel like game of thrones has never really been heavy-handed with its social commentary about the real world but i think that this is the closest it ever gets to it about the point that you know like humanity was saved and it was given a second chance in the previous episode what's it going to do with it it turns out we're just going to go back to squabbling and like the stuff with the night king it wasn't a big existential threat that brought everybody together and everybody's happy it seems like it was just a temporary detour and a distraction on the road to the bigger thing that everybody cares about which is the iron throne and it's quite a cynical and sad way to look at it but i think Mm. our world kind of proves them right i think that this episode also I think it benefits from this question that hangs over it where it's like, what if we just kept the cameras rolling after the credits rolled? Like, yeah. the, the, the big fantasy movie is over. Arya saved the world. Let's just keep the cameras rolling a little bit. Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. And I really love all the stuff that's to do with that. But I kind of implied how I felt, which is that it feels like it's two episodes squished together in terms of not just how much 
plot content we get through in this episode. But I think also in terms of pacing as well, there are many, many times after the 45-minute mark in this episode where the episode stops dead and then carries on. And it's like you, it, it arrives at these cadences where you think, right, the, the, the screen's going to fade to black, but then it just carries on yeah. and on. And, and it, it, when John leaves Winterfell, which I think is where the first part of this episode ends, when he doesn't say goodbye to Ghost and everybody's watching him leave, that feels like the end of part one. And it, there's another half an hour after that. It's far too long. I do think this episode is far too long. And it contains one of my least favorite scenes in all of Game of Thrones. Uh, which I know the will, one. And yeah, I agree. We'll talk about that. But yeah, it contains a lot of why I fell in love with the show in the first place. Um, loads of interesting questions that run through it that I wish people had paid more attention to at the time. Um, yeah, I'm quite eager to pick this one apart. So let's go. Yeah, let's get into it. We're here to say goodbye to our brothers and sisters, to our fathers and mothers. To our friends, our fellow men and women who set aside their differences to fight together and die together so that others might live. Everyone in this world owes them a debt that can never be repaid. It is our duty and our honor to keep them alive in memory for those who come after us and those who come after them for as long as men draw breath. They were the shields that guarded the realms of men. And we shall never see their light again. At Winterfell, with the army of the dead defeated, a mass funeral and cremation is held for those lost during the fight against the Night King. Hundreds, if not thousands, are laid to rest. Later that evening, a great feast is held in the Hall of Winterfell, and during the feast, Daenerys legitimises Gendry and makes him Lord of Storm's End. Around the room, several characters choose to either celebrate life, play drinking games, or drown their sorrows. Tyrion and Davos wonder whether the Lord of Light ever existed, Sansa and Sandor Clegane reunite, and Tormund loudly celebrates Jon's role in defeating the army of the dead. And meanwhile, Daenerys begins to feel isolated and retires from the room prematurely. So that's just the the first part, the initial funeral scene, and then a, a bit of the a bit of the feast. Um, what do we make of the the, the funeral, essentially the the mass the mass pyre? Um, yeah, I thought his eulogy was it was moving. Don't get me wrong, but I almost wonder if the scene might have been even more affecting if John hadn't spoken at all. Hmm. You know, it might have been a nice echo of um, if you remember Hoster Tully's silent funeral in season three yeah where it's all glances and words and expressions and actions yeah that's that's often all you need and yeah as we've already mentioned i don't feel like the episode has enough time to reflect on what's just happened in the previous episode and it doesn't give the audience that time either like there's so much that's been lost and there's so much damage done to winterfell itself as well as the people living in it Yet it feels like an aberration in the grand scheme of this episode. Hmm. I don't disagree, actually, about, now you've said it, about John's speech. Because I I like John's speech. And I think that Kit Harrington does quite a good... Because, like, you know, you listen to Kit Harrington talk, and I don't think he's ever totally comfortable doing John's accent. 
compared no. to his, compared to his own. And he, he does, no. yeah, he does well here. But I think the music in this bit is what gets me the most because yeah, yeah. it's quite unnerving. You would, you know, you expect something funereal, but you expect it to be bittersweet and melancholic and quite heartwarming in a way. Like you know, like even though it's sad that we've lost all these people and boy, have we lost a lot of people and boy, is there a lot of grief and pain on show here. Like John's speech says, they gave their lives to save humanity and ultimately their deaths weren't in vain. And so Mm. you expect music that brings that tone. But what you get is very uneasy and slightly unbalanced and discordant in a way that i really like like in full retrospect of the episode it's just that like there's just this feeling that like something's not right it's that everybody's minds as much as they are focused on their dead parts of their minds are also focused on like okay now we need to plan for the future and you know, it's like um, we we may have fought the Night King together, but I still feel a bit uneasy about that person there, and mm. I feel uneasy about that person there, and she feels uneasy about him, and the opening shot as well is very, very telling in retrospect about what this episode is going to be about, and it's the first shot is of someone that Daenerys has lost. They could have chosen Theon, they could yep. have chosen Ed. Leanna Mormont, any of the characters who died, I think it's very revealing about where the episode goes. This episode is all about everything that Daenerys loses and how isolated she's become yeah, you're in right. Westeros. And with this music playing over it, knowing where this episode goes, I think that, yeah, it's... That, for me, is my main takeaway. It's less about the grief on display and more about the fact that the grief only feels like it's temporary. Um, <laughs> a little note I did make is that, like, bloody hell, John, if you want people to stop following you, then you need to stop giving such damn good speeches. Um, because the more you walk forward and speak in front of everyone, the more they're going to look at you and go, yeah, I could follow him. Yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, another line spoken that John's saying, it's our duty to keep them alive in honour and in memory. It's like, yeah, John, about that. Um, and then you gesture broadly at the rest of the episode uh, that <laughs> yeah. happens afterwards. Um, so with the the feast, what do you make of Daenerys legitimising Gendry, like, straight away? Yeah, they swerved me on that. I was legitimately getting quite angry when I saw Daenerys making, you know, that face she does. Yes, the creep like, vibes face as I've yeah. become to uh, as I've come to know it as. Yeah, and like talking down to Gendry, but yeah, it's kind of a nice unexpected surprise to see her giving something back to someone for a change. I don't know. I don't know what brought that on. I don't know if it was maybe seeing like Jorah and thinking, mm, if you know, I should have given him more when I was alive, and this is maybe her way of making up for that it's it's not enough but it's something yeah i think that there is an element of i mean she even turns to Tyrion and says like you know there is an element of political maneuvering in this like she does the creep vibes face and then she sort of says look here's a guy that could be loyal to me but yeah yeah i think it's daenerys is daenerys keeps making these attempts to like ingratiate herself with the people of westeros and 
This is why I feel a little bit like Daenerys... I have a complicated reading of Daenerys, and I, I love Daenerys as a character, because I think it's easy to look at how she's behaved this season and think like, hmm... You know, she has given me creep vibes every now and again, and I thought, you know, she was a little bit unnecessarily harsh with Sansa, and I think that yeah, yeah. her wish to rule the Seven Kingdoms and stuff like that is just, like, I it, it, this idea of wanting to rule is, is something that doesn't really chime with me and what I would like to do in life. But the other side of it is that Daenerys is at least trying to make attempts to get to know people and st- and she has saved the north from I mean, without her they would not have survived what came for them and still she just doesn't get the response that you would expect there's nobody going I up know. and shaking her hand and being like oh cheers for your dragons or thanks for bringing all your big armies or anything like that and it's just nobody going up and so even when she does like the gendry thing it's like hey well done gendry good 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 for you okay okay, we're just gonna get drunk we're just gonna get drunk now and (laughs) yeah and even like even john who is like yeah fine torment shut up like it's something that this episode gets to the heart of which is that something that daenerys is very fast to realize and then varys and Tyrion realize it later which is just that what happens to John and Daenerys in this episode and what happens around them is kind of beyond their control. Like, the population makes its mind up. Mm-hmm. And then once it has that information that eventually comes out in this episode about John, once that information, if it hits the populace, like, it, Daenerys is right where it's like, you can't control something like this. John's even saying, like... Like, vomiting's not celebrating, and I didn't have much say in being brought back from the dead and all this. And, like, Tormund's just kind of loudly carrying on, and all the wildlings are like, oh, isn't John amazing? And Daenerys is just sat there like, oh, cheers, mate. Yeah, I'm also here. (laughs) Tyrion and Davos' conversation, did you take anything down about that? No, because I think they've said it all themselves. The only note I've written about this is that this is basically the episode's thesis being spoken aloud. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, this is... I love... This is where the meat of the episode is for me. Like, this this episode is kind of like the Winds of Winter, only, like, not a good version. Well, it's a decent rendition of the Winds of Winter in the sense that it contains everything that Game of Thrones is known for. The the big set pieces, the 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 meaty conversations and all of that it it manages to combine all of it and the first half of the episode for me is full of these conversations like Tyrion and Davos's where you could sit and you can chew on it for absolutely ages yeah you can just I mean I still do I still talk about this conversation specifically this whole we still have us to contend with even though we've defeated them i i still chat about that conversation with uh, with fans of the show and of the final season um and so to watch it this time this episode's gone up ever, ever so slightly in my estimation compared to where it used to be uh, on this particular rewatch and i think it's going back to conversations like this that really uh, enhance my viewing experience this time round a little thing I just wanted to mention. Um, I'm glad that this episode... I was thinking of you when I saw this. I'm glad that this episode puts the Tormund and Brienne stuff to bed. 
Like, God. it's a little late in the day. I think they should have dealt with it in season seven and then left it where it was. But yeah, I like the fact that it's just, in the end, if Tormund can get his end away, then, like, that's fine. Like, it's he has quite simple logic with that stuff. He's not a complicated guy. Like, it seems that maybe his... I mean, his love for Brienne or whatever it was, like, his lust for Brienne, it was growing a bit stale yeah it was yeah yeah, i'm i'm glad that they've dealt with it now because now i mean there's i know there's only two episodes left but you know (laughs) he's still being his usual shouty rugby club self when he's got like he's got john in like a headlock hasn't he yeah and he's throwing wine all over the place and all of that and there's something i want to mention about this scene because Listeners who've been with us from the start, I mentioned in the very first episode that one of the <laughs> few yeah. things I know about Game of Thrones is in this very scene. And yes. I, I want to say it's where Tormund is, as we say, loudly celebrating. Daenerys is off into the corner looking in the distance, looking very uncomfortable and out of place. Mm-hmm. And if you would have watched this on the original viewing, you might have spotted a Starbucks cup. Uh, well, it's it's a coffee. It's a takeaway coffee cup. The <laughs> origin of where the cup came Splitting from, hairs. yeah, is up for debate because yeah, okay, the, and 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 who left it there is also up for debate as well. Nobody seems to want to take the blame. Like no. there are some that there are some people who think it was Sophie Turner. There were some people who think it was Amelia Clark because obviously it was right in front of where she was. But there are that there is a stronger theory that it was Conleth Hill who plays Varys, that it was actually his. <gasps> um and so yeah. But they edited that out pretty sharpish. But um Yeah. Yeah, the coffee cup. Um before I go into that, I just want to say you mentioned in Daenerys there where she's not looking very happy. I love how the camera alone manages to completely isolate Daenerys in this feast, like yeah, She'll never great. have the love or devotion that John commands. A lot of soft mm. focus, a lots of deliberate blurring around her edges. Like her eyes go really big, and the camera's right up in her face while all the sound distorts around her. That's that's really gorgeous and does a hell of a lot of work with basically well with no words at all. But yeah, the mm. the coffee thing. Like so, in 2019, uh, as a Halloween costume, I went as the guy who left the coffee cup on the table in oh, game gosh. of thrones um i wore like what you would expect like a stage hand to wear like i wore like a a beanie hat and um a long sleeve shirt under a short sleeve shirt and <laughs> like baggy jeans and uh i came with a coffee cup in hand but yeah the thing about this is that i quite like stuff like this and i wish they left it in i, I understand why they took it out because they're like they must have thought oh shit we've made a mistake yeah. let's get rid of it but a lot of people were really really angry about this like to the point where you wouldn't think that goofs had ever happened in television before like a lot of people were like yeah. oh clearly they just don't give a shit anymore if something like this gets through and it's like no hang on a minute like you know Hundreds of people look at this before it goes to air. And all it takes is one of the 11 point however many million people who watch this episode. All it takes is one person to see it. And if they can get it on Twitter, everybody notices. And Mm. then 
because I didn't see it the first time. No, it's I, a I split didn't see second it. thing. You don't look. It, it lasts for a, a second. Exactly. So, like, all these people say, oh, they didn't care. Like, it, it ruins the immersion. And I'm like... Does it fuck? Do you really, really need to, like... Ugh, are you that, like, in, immersed in this universe that you've forgotten that it's fictional and that it's not real mm. and that humans made it? Like, yep. it, it, like, have you completely forgotten about this? That, like, Kit Harrington and Amelia Clark are real and that Daenerys Targaryen does not exist? And like, are you really that immersed that a coffee cup, which was the same colour as the table... Yeah. Are you really gonna? It, it, does a, it really yeah. break your disbelief that much that I and and the thing is, I quite like goofs because it reminds me that with all yeah. this money and with all this talent, sometimes mistakes just happen. Yeah, and they're fun. I think what's what's not fun is people like pointing them out and saying, "Ah, they fucked up. Look at it." It's like nobody cares. Look how clever That's, I am for spotting it. Like, yeah. Boy, I, I sure hope somebody got fired for that blunder, yeah. Exactly. I can't believe that, like, someone who was parodied on The Simpsons, like, 25 years ago <laughs> is... And, and they're just still around. But um, the, yep. thing, the thing is it... The thing with it, though, is that George Lucas has made several edits, and I mean that there is a whole Wikipedia page just dedicated to the edits that George Lucas has made to the original mm. Star Wars movie. Like, And throughout every cut of that movie and every change they have made to it, they have always left in the stormtrooper clunking his head off the doorframe. Yeah. They've left it in every time because it's funny and because yeah. it's like all of this money went into this massive production and... That still happened, <laughs> and and people love it, and people look at that and go, "Oh, dude, that's really funny." Like there is a car in the back of a shot in Lost. Like there's a four by four that's just in the back. There are some ridiculously famous goofs in movies and stuff that we all love, that exactly. we all love reminding people of. And so when it came to this one, it was like, "This is the one." No, no, this is it. This is the example that like they just don't, they don't give a shit anymore. They've like. I think there's this narrative spreading that like Benioff and Weiss just mentally checked out after season six, and it's like I don't think Ugh. you mentally check out of something and then put three years of your life into something. Yeah. Like if you checked out, you just hand it to someone and walk away, like has exactly. been done on The Walking Dead about two or three different times. And who who the fuck watches The Walking Dead anymore? So anyway, right? <laughs> um, Speaking of things in the background, um, while Sansa and Sandor are talking, which we'll talk about in a second, um, did you notice Podrick going off with two girls in the back? No, I didn't. Watch that scene again of uh, Sandor and Sansa speaking to each other, and in between them in the back, near the window, Podrick's got his arm round two girls and he wanders off to the side with uh, with one of them. That's a good thing that people notice in the background that I absolutely love because it's a thing oh, that cool. you were meant to see. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, have a look out for that. He's going to sing to them in lush tones. Yeah, a lot of people said that, like, you know, that they thought that this these previous few episodes have kind of answered the theory of what happened and it's like, did Podrick just sing to the, me the, the people in the King's, King's Landing brothel and so they gave him his money back, and that's why he never said, because he never actually did anything with them. He just sang to them or spoke to them or just gave them the time of day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, another point of contention when this episode aired was the 
Sansa and Sandor conversation. Mm. I don't know if you took any notes about that. Oh, yes. Um, Okay, so regarding this conversation, like, as I've mentioned, I know there was a lot of backlash to this episode, and especially, I've noticed, to this part where, you know, Sansa acknowledges how her experiences with Joffrey and Ramsay and Littlefinger have affected her. But I think some of the criticism of it is far too simplistic. Like, if you look at the line itself, without Littlefinger and Ramsay and the rest, I would have stayed a little bird all my life. Like, there's two ways of interpreting that. It's either a matter-of-fact way of saying that those experiences have fundamentally changed her, which is obvious, or, as some critics seem to have interpreted it as, you might think that Sansa is saying that she wouldn't be the strong, confident person that she is today without those experiences of abuse, which would be a particularly dubious bit of writing if that were the case. But, in my opinion, that reading of it is only what Sansa herself thinks. Like, she believes that those experiences shaped her into a more resilient person, but as the audience, we can take a step back And we can see that she's also much more distrustful of people outside her immediate circle. And we've also seen that she can be vengeful and even bloodthirsty at times. Have we, you know, we discussed that in our Battle of the Bastards episode. And like, it's a, just in real life, it's a common misconception to believe that trauma can make you stronger. What it actually does is it, it can make you harder and tougher in, you know, which in turn constrain your existing relationships and it can make it much more difficult to form new ones. So to me, Sansa is mistaking healing from trauma with growing stronger from it. Those old wounds can heal, but they become scars that never fully go away. Yeah, I can barely add to that. That's really well put. Um, That's really terrific analysis and I'm very... Because I know how you felt about the way that Sansa's storyline was handled around Mm. season five. And so I didn't know how you were going to take this. And I'm quite relieved, if only for the sake of the length of the length of the episode, (laughs) that you've come (laughs) to the basically the same conclusion. Um, It is not the grateful retort that some people think that it is. No, it's not all. But again, I think this comes down to quite a lot of people just willfully engaging with the show in bad faith by this point. Where I think that, as I said in like season two, Game of Thrones grew up a bit with regards to how it handled stuff like this. And I think this is an example of maybe Game of Thrones growing up more than the audience kind of gives it credit for. And I will never defend the things in Game of Thrones that I think were iffy with regards to how they've approached these kinds of storylines, especially in the first half of the show. But I think Mm. Benioff and Weiss took hold of Sansa in season four and turned her into something else. And I think that this is now Benioff and Weiss's version of Sansa. She's virtually unrecognisable from the version of Sansa that we get in the first three seasons um, when she's, you know, chiefly they're using material that's... um, written by George R. R. Martin, and as of yet, George R. R. Martin has not been able to write his version of Sansa Mm. in this part of the story. 
And so Benioff and Weiss, they care deeply about Sansa and they've taken ownership of Sansa and they love Sophie Turner as well. And throughout everything that happened with Sansa, Sophie Turner was like, this is great. I love this material. Like, this is really powerful and I love performing it. And I'd always trust the words of the people on the ground with stuff like this, the people who are actually involved and saying these lines over and over and over again. Of course. And... Yeah, I'm I'm really, really glad that your interpretation of that scene is, is the same as mine because well, it, it feels like the most appropriate takeaway from the scene. I owe them the truth. Even if the truth destroys us. It won't. It will. I've never begged for anything. But I'm begging you. You are my queen. Nothing will change that. And they're my family. We can live together. We can. I've just told you how. In part two, emboldened by his new status as Lord of Storm's End, Gendry proposes to Arya, but she gently lets him down. During a drinking game, Tyrion correctly deduces that Brienne is a virgin, Brienne leaves the feast shortly afterwards, and a very drunk Jamie Lannister then visits Brienne in her room, and the pair of them have sex. Daenerys returns to her in Jon's chambers and admits she has started to feel uncomfortable at the acclaim that Jon is receiving from the wildlings. She privately begs him to never reveal his true parentage, but Jon insists that he has renounced his claim to the Iron Throne in order to support hers, and he also insists that he owes the truth to Sansa and Arya about who he really is. So, what have you got about the Gendry and Arya stuff? How do you feel about that? I mean, I've actually got a little bit more later for when Arya leaves. They kind of, um, they blend into one a little bit for me. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, much like, you know, the mood in King's Landing at the end of the War of Five Kings, there's that question of, what now hanging over several characters at Winterfell. And I think Arya especially stands out in that regard. Like, she was the one that took out the Night King, but she wasn't even there for the celebrations in the hall, like when Daenerys gives her a shout-out. And she wasn't there for Gendry's ascension to Lord of Storm's End. So even before, you know, the later scene at the Godswood and, you know, her leaving, it seems that Arya's kind of already somewhere else mentally she's got no real interest in celebrating with the rest of Winterfell or even Gendry and then she leaves later on without so much as a wave goodbye because she knows that she has unfinished business in King's Landing and to me that's like eight seasons worth of build which could be about to unfold before us and I'm very excited to see it but yeah just in this moment it's yeah it's clear that Arya's checked out mentally. She's done all she needs to do in Winterfell. And this is a point where she's thinking, okay, I need to go and do something else now. Yeah, I think that Arya thinks that something would have healed by now. Yeah, definitely. Like, whatever it is, I think she expected it to feel different. And Mm. it doesn't. That thirst of vengeance is still it's there like it's still you know she doesn't want to settle down it's there's something there's an itch 
that she thought that she'd scratched and it's not quite gone, which I think makes a really profound point about Aya's character, which is that she basically she, she's come home she's protected every she, you know she saved humanity protected her family all of this but there's just something gnawing at her and mm. I, it is a criticism of mine for this episode that i wish we spent more time in this kind of mood and in this I kind agree. of place because it's all there I think I think all of it is there. The fact that we're talking about it means that we've taken we we've taken this conclusion away from the episode, which means that the content is there, and it's all there through, you know, it's not heavy-handed with it. It's I think it's really graceful and subtle with it, and it's something that you can pick up and take home for later rather than something that's just beaten into you. But yeah, I wish they spent more time on Aya in this episode. Yeah, I agree. And it's that moment, like, sorry, to, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but, you know, later on when um, Sandor says, oh, they love you in there, you're the big hero, and she just goes, I don't like heroes. It's that point you you mentioned where I think she thinks that something would have clicked inside her mind, like something would, something would fundamentally change her, and it hasn't, and she's just back to square one. So, what do you... There's a big event in this episode with Jamie and Brienne. Uh, how do you feel yeah. about that? Well, I mean, okay, there... I don't think it's too controversial to say that there's definitely, like, two different angles to Brienne and Jamie sleeping together. Like, let's not beat around the bush. Jamie is rotten, stinking drunk. Like, that's... Not to deny the damage he did to Brienne later in the episode, but this was always the angle that he was coming at this predicament from, in my opinion. And sure, he probably does have at least some feeling for Brienne, but certainly not in the same way he does for Cersei, someone for whom he's willing to risk his life and his reputation to protect. Brienne, on the other hand, probably has much stronger feelings for Jamie than vice versa. And yeah, I'm sure there's a bit of the old Dutch courage in there as well, but that emotion feels much more genuine from Brienne, like many others in the episode, as I've mentioned. The end of this war, and for some, the abundance of alcohol, means that a lot more introspection is happening. People like Brienne, who previously assumed that they'd be dead soon, and resign themselves to their fates have again found themselves looking deeper and asking what it is they really want and like Brienne herself is clearly genuinely upset when Tyrion reveals that she's a virgin but does this information really come as a surprise to the characters or the audience like everything we've ever seen Brienne do in the show has been for the benefit of somebody else and serving serving others is all we've ever really seen her do. It would be easy to have assumed that Brienne herself isn't interested in romance or sexuality, but what's revealed here is that Brienne actually does want those things, and now that she's served her promise to Catelyn and survived the Army of the Night, it's the first real moment in the show where she's been able to kind of let her guard down and be honest about those feelings. Of course, the only downside is that she's potentially in love with the most emotionally unavailable man in Westeros. <laughs> and that's my pitch. Well, that's excellent because, honestly, <laughs> up to now, I haven't been keen on the Jamie and Brienne stuff. 
in this episode. Okay. I I don't like the way that it comes about because like a woman being unmarried and a virgin in Westeros is I understand Tyrion's not exactly the most conventional of Westerosi folk, but no. It's virtuous to have your virginity still intact when you're unmarried mm. and a woman in Westeros. And so Tyrion bringing it up as this kind of you're a virgin and Brienne being all shy and ashamed about it. It, it just, it doesn't quite ring true to me, but like, okay, so I can, I can look past that because, you know, Tyrion's got a modern mind and that's fine. But I think that the Jamie and Brienne stuff in this episode could have been achieved without this. Like I'm normally really pro sex scenes um, and there's something about two of this world's more unconventional heroes sharing a moment of intimacy that feels kind of appropriate. Like, mm. uh, you know, this show has always celebrated the cripples, the bastards, the broken things. Yep. Jamie's got one hand. Brienne has always been bullied for her appearance. I, 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 I get it. Um, but I think it reduces the complexity of their relationship a little bit. I think the okay. the knighting scene was their sex scene. And yeah, okay. I think that the same thing could be achieved without it. But what you've just said there about this scenario, event, basically creating a scenario where Brienne kind of gets a bit led on in this episode. Yeah, definitely. That, I can definitely, I can definitely go for that. Um, I think a lot of people at the time, as we'll find out later in the episode, would have been very, very upset if um, we'd found out that not only was Brienne crying over a man, but crying over a man that led her on. Jesus, how dare a big, strong woman cry? But Shock horror. I really like your analysis of it, and I'm going to take that into the future with me. Because um, I know you said, you told me on messages that you were really into Brienne's actions in this episode and like the way that she behaves. Yeah, I was. And like this in particular, as I've said, it's is a moment of weakness for both of them. But yeah, that you know, it's you sometimes in those moments express feelings that you wouldn't otherwise. Hmm. And there's another couple who retire to a bedroom slightly after that. Um there is. John and Daenerys. Uh this is where things start to turn. Um, for the both of them. Uh, John forcing himself to love his aunt, Daenerys' world shattering around her, her identity, the fact that she'll never be properly thanked by the North for what she sacrificed to save them. Daenerys still insisting that the throne is hers when it really, really isn't. Like, she knows this. She's speaking to the guy who told her that it's not, and she's still like, just, 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 just don't tell anyone. Just, just let me have my dream. But she's dead right, because everything she says comes true in this episode. Like, as soon as the information is out, it flies fast. Like, it's true. Once people have control of power, and once people, even people like Varys, who think that, like, they are driven entirely by the needs of the common people and stuff, when they get hold of information that's that powerful, they don't keep hold of it. They, they they try to move the piece themselves because they think, oh, it's like Sam in episode one of this season where it's like, I've got the valuable piece of information that could potentially 
tilt the you know tilt the table of history yeah and i'm not going to keep it to myself i'm going to tell john with a political ulterior motive and daenerys is dead right she is completely right and as much as it's scary to watch daenerys turn in this scene with the we can live together. I've just told you how. Like, Amelia Clark is a warm person, but her ability to craft, like, the coldest fucking face... Oh, yeah. ...is amazing. Um, but she is absolutely right. Like, I wonder about the power dynamics in this relationship a lot, if the gender roles were flipped. Mm, but definitely. as much as Daenerys's motives are not in good faith... The point she is raising is exactly right. And her desperation, the, the closer she gets to the Iron Throne, the, the further away it seems to go. She, she is completely right. She is absolutely right. I am simultaneously angry with and frightened of and sympathetic for and heartbroken for Daenerys across this episode. I feel all four things at the same time. And it's only going to continue from from this point of the episode as we'll as we'll discuss yeah if what do you make i mean of it? It, i've not really got much apart from this observation that if a knight of the seven kingdoms was denial and the long night was anger then we are thoroughly in the bargaining phase of her stages of grief on you know losing what who she thought john was well, now you've said that, I'm going to let you in on a little production thing from around the time, which was that Miguel Sapochnik, who directed episode three and obviously previous episodes, he wanted to direct episodes three, four, and five. Okay. He saw them as a as, as a trilogy of episodes that all right. ran one after the other. And you saying that, where they're moving through the stages of, of, of loss, of, of grief, hmm. it's interesting that you've picked up on the fact that there are this this group of episodes, I know you've included in A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, but the, 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 this group of episodes that all kind of run together thematically through various stages. And I think it's interesting that you've said that when Miguel Sapochnik was quite keen to want to do all three episodes as well. But in the end, things couldn't work out that way. David Nutter wanted to come back. He, he got penciled in for three episodes, that sort of thing. But mm. yeah. Um, but I spoke to you a little bit uh, just on messages this week about the power dynamics. Like, I often wonder, like, imagine a King John Eris or, or uh, to use a actual Targaryen king name, uh, Jaehaerys Targaryen, telling a Queen of the North, Daniela Stark, that she can't press her claim because it might yeah. get in the way of his own... And yeah, I wonder about the power dynamics in John and Daenerys' relationship. I find them very interesting. And mm. a lot of people were already unhappy with how John had been presented through this season, not getting his hero moment and such. And in this episode, people were also not happy with... I, I think... David Benioff and Dan Weiss's version of Jon Snow is... This is... I can start talking about this stuff now. I think he is one of the most fascinating interrogations of masculinity on TV. Yeah, fair enough. In in modern TV, like, if you could think about the stature of Game of Thrones and how popular it was and how popular a hero character Jon Snow was and how differently he responds to the calling that heroes have and how differently he 
behaves in this in this kind of scenario where like a woman is telling him what to do and he's just kind of going like uh, yeah uh, uh, yeah fine like I don't think that in other franchises of this size you get this kind of interrogation and display of other types of masculinity like the there is a really good video that I will leave in the description for people who have seen all of Game of Thrones because there are spoilers for the last two episodes in mm-hmm. the video but it's a guy called Yezen IRL and he does this amazing video about hegemonic masculinity in Game of Thrones and how Jon Snow as a character and the reception of Jon Snow as a character is quite heavily affected by this this thing that he terms as hegemonic masculinity and i think that john's role in daenerys's relationship we will talk about it a bit more when the whole series is over and everything's out in the wash um but john in season eight is one of my favorite if you separate every single character by season john snow in season eight for me is up there with Tyrion in season two and season yeah. four and I are in the first four seasons and stuff like that. I will keep my mouth shut for now because we've got the rest okay. of the episode to do. <laughs> but yeah, just make a note. <laughs> Hi, God, are you mad? It's better than being dead. He's not going to kill us. He wouldn't be talking to us. The way I see it, I only need one of the Lannister brothers alive. High God will never belong to a cutthroat. No? Who were your ancestors? The ones who made your family rich. Fancy lads in silk. They were fucking cutthroats. That's how all the great houses started, isn't it? With a hard bastard who was good at killing people. Kill a few hundred people, they make you a lord. Kill a few thousand, they make you king. And then, all your cocksucking grandsons can ruin the family with their cocksucking ways. At a war council the next day, Daenerys states her wish to march on King's Landing immediately. Sansa argues back that the northern soldiers are not ready for another fight, but Jon follows Daenerys' orders and agrees to transport the army southwards on foot. Daenerys flies south while the Dothraki and the Unsullied will sail for Dragonstone. Afterwards, Arya and Sansa inform Jon that they do not trust Daenerys. Jon attempts to defend her, but can't. He then swears them to secrecy and reveals to them his true parentage and the fact that he is the heir to the Iron Throne. Bronn then arrives at Winterfell and uses the crossbow given to him by Cersei and Kyburn to bargain with Tyrion and Jaime for a better deal, which will see him potentially become Lord of the Reach. And the following morning, Arya and Sandor head for King's Landing. And as Daenerys' army begins to leave, Sansa expresses her doubts to, uh, about Daenerys to Tyrion and then informs Tyrion about Jon's parentage as well. Jon bids farewell to Sam and a pregnant Gilly and says goodbye to Tormund, with whom he leaves Ghost. So... Um, the War Council, I think this is where the episode starts to behave as if the previous episode just never happened. Like, yeah, definitely. we're already, we've not even left Winterfell and we're already like off, focusing on something else. <laughs> what do you make of that? Yeah, I'm Santa in this scene. Like, we're already still exhausted from the last battle. <laughs> like, we can't go out yeah. again. Come on, mm-hmm. give like, fucking hell, give us a couple of weeks. But... Yeah, it, I mean, it's 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 tense enough. It's a continuation of that sort of Daenerys and Sansa not quite seeing eye to eye. Some nice little glances between Sansa and Arya. I like when they have that, you know, that it's, I don't know how you describe it. It's like a sibling dynamic 
that you'd get in real life, but you see it on screen. Yeah, yeah. Which you don't get often between them, like because there's always that bit of tension, but it's always spoken in a very George R. R. Martin way. Yeah. Whereas I, I do like that thing of just I don't know young women being young women and giving each other that look. Like, oh God, here we fucking go. <laughs> yeah, we don't like we don't approve of our brother's partner. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly it. Like, oh yeah, she's got a car, has she? Oh. Hmm. Oh, I guess we're not good enough for you then. Yeah. After that, mm. we get the scene with the Starks in the Godswood, and John yeah. has to open his big fat mouth. Um, now, I want to ask you a question about the decision they make to cut away. Mm. Did that set? Like, did that make? Did that get any kind of reaction out of you? Like the fact that they cut away before John was able to say what he wanted to say not really because we know what he's going to say and i think it's kind of a, a way of so you, so you're not having to repeat that um that moment of explaining everything like over and over again because then it starts to lose its effect it's like you know what it is and that's all you need it's yeah it's, it's i see it more as restraint but go on Oh, thank you. Just like, fuck me. Like, this is one of the strangest complaints about this episode. It's like, we have heard this story, like, a million different times. Like, John said it to Daenerys. Yep. Sam said it to John. Like, Bran said it to Sam. And it's like, we can't hear this story again. Like, please like we we can't hear it again like we can't go through the whole story again and so mm. a lot of people disliked the cutaway but i i just i don't want to hear him say it again like i just i don't care no because <laughs> i really don't it's, care it's fine to let the audience use their imagination it's fine to you know let them picture what Sansa and Arya might have said and obviously Arya leaves later on in the episode so that might be an indication but I like I did really like Bran saying you know because they all looked to Bran and he just goes it's your choice like I I love that there's a bit of humanity in there it's it's not just you must tell them John it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of yeah there's there's a sort of realization in Bran there that yeah it's it's not an easy thing to do and you know it's your call ultimately but no going back to what we were saying i think it's absolutely fine to cut it off where it is you don't need to hear the story again we know the story just let yeah just let it be you know yeah um i love how the, the again this news about John being this secret king is like the worst possible news like it's just this virus yes. where it's like yeah. anyone who contracts this virus immediately has to spread it it's like um have you ever seen it follows no i haven't it follows is a fantastic horror movie okay. and it's basically like this monster just follows people walking it, it doesn't run it just walks towards them very slowly and the mm. only way that they can transfer that monster onto somebody else is by sleeping with them and then it follows the person they've slept with and yeah it's kind of like this where like anybody who finds out about this piece of information 
has this thing pecking away at their brain and it's like <laughs> i need to tell somebody otherwise it's going to keep pecking away at my brain and yep. so Santa finds out and immediately goes and <laughs> blabs to T- Tyrion about it. Um, I think this is one of those things where, like, if this had been a split, if there had been an episode split between the point where John tells Santa and then Santa tells Tyrion, like, if this was in, if this was next week's episode, it would feel like Santa had held on to the information for more than a second after being sworn to secrecy and then going. <laughs> Oh, Tyrion, by the way, but this is where the scene in The Long Night last week becomes quite significant, where Tyrion and Sansa, despite being on opposing sides, they've bonded, mm. because Tyrion is frightened of Daenerys now. Oh, yeah. Tyrion is in full-on denial about what's going on with Jon and Daenerys, and what's what's the reality of what might happen if that yep. news gets out. And, like, yeah, people really turned... I mean... Sansa, I mean, I don't want to invite you into the fandom wars too much, but Sansa and Daenerys had separate camps, and, like, people who stand Sansa really hated Daenerys and vice versa. And when Sansa did this, oh, the gosh. Daenerys stand okay. group just went... They were just in flames about this. Mm-hmm. Like, they were just like, oh, my God, Sansa's such a this, such a that. Like, oh. crikey, they're fictional fucking characters. Um, Fuck me. Yeah, this is this is what this is why I had to get out of yeah. The web. I don't like, blame just you. Get off the internet, because um, Jesus like, Christ, the thousands of people who really, really. I mean, I took this seriously and I loved it, and I watched it at two o'clock in the morning, and it made me cry, and like I love it so much, but I still remember that they're fictional characters and that the yep. actors are not the people. Like Sophie Turner was bullied off social media exactly. after this. <laughs> Um, oh, for fuck's so, sake. Yeah, um, it's uh, not a happy time, so... <laughs> God damn it. The the bronze scene, I really like yeah. it, but I know you're not so keen on it, so tell me about that. Um, I mean, I didn't need it. I'm not going to say I hate it or anything, because, yeah, if anyone's going to try and bargain for a better deal, it's Bron. But... Uh, I don't know. I was kind of looking forward to the whole thing of, well, you know, Tyrion and Jamie have survived, but they've got Bronn waiting for them at King's Landing. But, yeah, yeah it kind of takes away that surprise a bit, because now I know that Bronn is he's still just a hired gun, and everybody has a price, especially Bronn. See, I kind of like it for that reason. As much as I think that Bronn has overstayed his welcome in the show, I think this mm. could... this the Bronn's dialogue in this scene, the whole thing about who were your ancestors, like they were cutthroats, like kill a few hundred, they'll make you a lord, kill a few thousand, they'll make you king, or the, whatever it is that he says. That sounds like something he would have said to Tyrion across a table with wine in season two. Like, yeah, it just, yeah. I, I kind of like that. It feels like it's something that's been plucked out, plucked out of Game of Thrones past and plonked into into season eight. Um, I had honestly, though, I had honestly forgotten about Bronn in the previous two episodes. And so when he turns up in this one, it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, the crossbow, of course. <laughs> I remember now. <laughs> that was the scene where they joked about Ed Sheeran having his eyelids burnt off. I remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's yeah. it's one of those things for me, like, because I'm just picturing if 
Cersei had given him an offer he couldn't refuse, like an offer that nobody could ever match because, yeah, I don't know, the crown is just that rich, then, yeah, maybe you wouldn't need this. But I don't know. It's it's fine. I don't, I don't dislike it by any means, but it's one of those where it takes something away that I was maybe expecting to come up later on. Yeah, it's not where you expected the storyline to go, and the version that you no, had in your head is maybe what you would have preferred. <laughs> mm, yes. Yeah. Uh, there's one final scene uh, where John says goodbye to mm-hmm. a bunch of people at Winterfell. Um, one of the saddest lines John ever says is when Gilly says, "If it's a boy, we're going to name him John," and he just says, "Well, I hope it's a girl." Oh, yeah, that's really devastating. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what notes you've got about that. Yeah, I'm glad he said that and not, well, how about name him Egon? (laughs) After your old friend. (laughs) I don't really have much about this. It it kind of says everything it needs to, but... Okay, so I realise that this is the last time we see Gilly in the show, right? Um, Maybe. Who knows? Okay, I'm not going to confirm nor deny. Oh, right, okay. Has Wikipedia confirmed it for you already? Um, yes. <laughs> I do look at those things. Uh, okay, so I'll go from you. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It might not be the last time we see Sam, but it, okay. it is the last time that we see we see Gilly, yeah. Is it the last time we see Sam Jr. as well, then? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. Okay, okay, well, I feel like we need to give a little farewell, then, because I've loved Gilly in this show. <laughs> Yeah, she's, you know, she's always, she's managed to do this kind of like, she's permanently been a third tier character, but Mm. she's always had like a very unique presence. Like I, I mean, I, to be fair, like there are so many characters in this show, but like there are some that as soon as I saw them, I could pick them out of a lineup because I'd already seen them in something else. And so I remember Hannah Murray from Skins. Yep, she same. was she was Cassie in Skins, as and you know Joe Dempsey was Chris, and they were really good yeah, friends. Yeah. Cassie and Chris, they were really good friends in Skins, and so when she turned up in this, I was like, oh, it's it's uh, it's her from Skins, and so, <laughs> but now when I watch Skins, it's like, oh, it's Gilly, and so yeah, full testament to Hannah Murray for like managing to make me remember her for a different role even though I saw her as Cassie first in Skins all those years ago. <laughs> did um, did um, Gilly and uh, Gendry ever have an interaction in the show? I can't remember now. No, I don't think so, which oh. is a shame. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is a, a small shame. It's not something I think about much, but now you mention it, yeah, that would have been, that would have been pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a cute little moment. But yeah, I just wanted to give that moment of appreciation for... Yeah, a character I'm going to miss. And just before we leave Winterfell, John not saying goodbye to Ghost. Mm. Did you make any notes about that? Did that pop up for you? No, not really. Mainly because, I, I hate to say this, I don't think about Ghost very much. Yeah, the show doesn't really have the space, time or budget for direwolves. No, think. it doesn't. Um, it, I feel like it yeah. moved on to dragons in about season three or four and never really looked back. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Um, so this is another thing that people were annoyed about. Okay. That John didn't pet the dog before he 
And not in a slightly ironic, <laughs> oh, isn't it unfortunate that he didn't pet the dog kind of way, in a, I am legitimately angry that John didn't touch Ghost when he said oh, goodbye. God. Who cares? Um, well, a lot of people, apparently. <laughs> but this is what I mean about people just sort oh. of engaging with the show in bad faith by this point, looking for things to be legitimately irritated by yeah. a, a sign that the show is is dead and is dying and is broken beyond repair because these two idiots, Benioff and Weiss, they just they can't write TV, goddammit. Um, whatever. But, yeah, yeah, whatever, exactly. That's a, a wonderful Doesn't response. Matter. Whatever. <laughs> He's a war hero. He loves our queen. And she loves him. If we marry them, they could rule together. She's his aunt. They never stopped a Targaryen before. No, but John grew up in Winterfell. He's marrying your aunt Common in the north. You know our queen better than I do. Do you think she wants to share the throne? She does not like to have her authority questioned. Something she has in common with every monarch who ever lived. I worry about her state of mind. We are advisors to the queen. Worrying about her state of mind is our job. As Daenerys' fleet approaches Dragonstone, Tyrion and Varys discuss the information they've received regarding Jon's parentage and claim to the Iron Throne, as well as their concerns about Daenerys' emotional and mental stability. And then suddenly, their fleet is ambushed by Euron Greyjoy, who fires scorpion bolts at Daenerys and her dragons and kills Rhaegal. Several of Daenerys' soldiers and advisors are forced to jump overboard and eventually make it to Dragonstone's shore, all except Missandei, who is missing from the group of survivors. Inside the fortress, Varys and Tyrion try to convince Daenerys once again to avoid attacking King's Landing straight away. Varys then privately informs Tyrion that he's deeply concerned about Daenerys and suggests the possibility of supporting Jon's claim instead. But Tyrion stands by his queen. Um, we'll talk about the Varys and Tyrion stuff first. Yeah, sure. Both basically saying out loud what we kind of mentioned before, that John and Daenerys, and what Daenerys said before, that John and Daenerys are not in control of what happens now. No. And neither are Tyrion or Varys. Like, mm. the information is out there. Like, as Varys says, it's not a secret anymore. It, it, it's information. And a lot of people aren't happy with... Like, a lot of people in the audience were not happy with the way that Varys' allegiances shifted in this episode but it's this show i would argue has always been about people trying to survive yeah stay definitely. in the game as long as you can and varis that urge to stay alive survive combined with the worries that he has about daenerys and whether she's fit for the common people like he supported her when she was over in essos and mm. he wanted her to take the iron throne but since she's turned up in westeros it's not quite it's not like it's not gone to plan it's more like it's not gone to plan and then daenerys has not responded very well and now we have the information about john and varus is like well maybe this could stop the war like maybe having john on the iron throne like maybe that could just you know i'm varus is like putting the trolley problem up in his head and he's he's picked yeah he's picked to to not he's, he's picked to pull the lever basically i mean yeah i love this idea that we've discussed that 
the knowledge of John's parentage is this like poison chalice. It's like King Midas in reverse, where everything it touches turns to shit. Yeah, yeah. And like Tyrion says it perfectly himself. You know, think of the past twenty years: the war, the murder, the misery. All of it because Robert Baratheon loves someone who didn't love him back. Like this knowledge that John is actually the true heir to the throne comes as good news to absolutely nobody because it takes most of those lived experiences of the characters we've known for so long and it stamps on everything they've previously believed or understood about power and righteousness and the importance of the Iron Throne. It's an inconvenient truth that seemingly nobody wants to believe is true because it has no obvious answer to the extent that, you know, even Tyrion wonders if destruction by Cersei might be the preferred option. Varys and Tyrion have been worried about Daenerys for a while now. I feel like people just overlook that scene in Eastwatch where they talk to each other and Varys is like, when her father was burning people alive, I just used to say, I'm not the one doing it. Like, it's not me. Like, Mm. and... Varys is kind of done with that now. He's been that person, doesn't want to be that person anymore. He's going to... Basically, he's going to... Well, he's not He's not confirmed that he's going to shift his allegiances, but he's going to try. <laughs> yeah. Well, like you say, it's about survival. And if you're at this point of the show, this late into the to run of the show, then you've probably done a good job of that. Yeah, um, so you're saying, you're speaking about good jobs, um, a not-so-good <laughs> job. Uh, mm. The Rhaegal getting shot out of the sky, um, I think this is rubbish. I think this yeah. is quite bad. I think the show forgets its own rules about how to manage shock. Like, I think about the defining shocking sequences in Game of Thrones, and all of them except maybe John being stabbed to death at the end of season five, all of them clue the audience in about what's going to happen. They make you feel awful about it, and then they drag you towards it slowly. Like, I'm thinking mm. about the Red Wedding, I'm thinking about oh, definitely, yeah. the Sept of Baelor sequence. I'm even thinking mm. about something like the Night King uh, getting Viserion out of the sky. Like, we spend a good 15 seconds watching the Night King preparing the Ice Javelin, moving yeah, into position. Through, it, it, like, it's this slow crawl towards the inevitable, whereas with this, it's just like, they haven't tried to make this scene work beyond trying to shock people. And yeah. it means that when the shock is gone, you're just there like, how did they not see Euron's fleet? Like, I, yeah. I feel like arranging the scene differently so that they can see Euron's fleet, they can see it coming, and there's nothing they can do, and then the scorpion bolts start getting fired. Like, that would make it feel more crushing this is just I a agree. shock and then when the shock is gone it it does it does feel pretty hollow this scene mm. like it the image of a dragon falling out of the sky is never gonna it's never gonna it's never gonna fail to make me feel something because i just think that like the show has made them so majestic that to see them like in the spoils of war and in this episode it's like they crash out of the sky yeah and 
the way that like the bolt goes through his neck and it's just like he's like going it's just that is all really good but just the way that it's all arranged is like (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) i wish they'd done it differently i don't know how you feel yeah ironically it's the biggest misfire of the episode um (laughs) like there's a right way to do a shock death scene and this isn't it like it's frustrating because i feel like this would have been quite easy to fix with some editing or an additional scene beforehand like i said to you if i don't know jamie had secretly sent a raven to cersei informing her of danny's plans but instead the ambush just kind of seems to happen out of nowhere and an important moment like the death of Rhaegal is treated like a minor detail or just another plot link. Like you even showed me a clip on YouTube where someone had edited it so that you're on like missed a few shots before finally hitting Rhaegal and even that small edit made the scene much more believable and impactful. But yeah, as it is, it just kind of comes and goes and by the end of the episode you've forgotten that Rhaegar's even been killed yeah I yeah I agree I think that this is a unfortunate this is an unfortunate symptom of the episode giving itself a bit too much to do I think that definitely Rhaegar going and what happens right at the end like they're both worthy of ending episodes and they even cut to black when Tyrion gets hit by the the beam you're right it yeah. just that was like oh is that the end of the episode oh no we've got another 20 minutes so it just yeah it it's that's one of those cadences it hits where it's like oh well here come the credits oh no no the varus is coughing a lot on a beach i see we're still mm-hmm. we're still going and sunday's missing right oh ooh. and it just yeah it doesn't give you a lot of time to really digest what's happened to be honest um but once they get to dragonstone the the meat of the conversations comes back. Um, I won't say much about the war council scene because my analysis of it is heavily, heavily affected by the next two episodes where Varys okay, and Tyrion fine. and Daenerys are all talking to each other. What did you make of it, though? Um, I didn't... It's funny because I don't really have much about it. I, I think it's interesting to see how how much Varys has just been, like you say, it's, I don't think it's a sudden shift. I think it's been a gradual change in his, of his mindset where he's thinking, you know, maybe like I've not picked the wrong course so much as I don't think it's the perfect solution that maybe we thought it was. But there's also that sense of desperation that always you can see in Daenerys in these war room scenes like in the one before as well and you know any suggestion of you know maybe we should just wait a while it's like how long how long i need to know how long like what is it about this that can't wait any longer not even a minute well this is where i can talk about it without going too much into what happens down the line but daenerys has started and it's something that Tyrion actually acknowledges in this episode and I think he's completely right which is that Daenerys walked into a funeral pyre with three dragon eggs and came out completely fine with three dragons and like if something like that happens to you you're going to believe that you have a a destiny like some god-given divine right to achieve what you've been told you were going to achieve I you know it's really weird 
on In Five, uh, the podcast that, I, that Edward Ed Thomas does, the guy who does our theme music, I was on there yeah. talking about uh, Kanye West. Oh, yeah. And obviously about, uh, it was a little while before his first album, The College Dropout, he survived uh, a car crash, like a yeah. pretty nasty car crash. And he had his whole face reconstructed. That's why he can't smile. Like, you know, he had his whole face reconstructed and like, he was trying to make it as a producer and it wasn't really going very well. And then he had a major car accident. And just before he was about to record his first album, when he's finally got his break and he survived it. And I think if something like that happens to you, you're going to think there's a reason for me being here. Like Mm. you try to explain the inexplicable and the only way you can do it is that is by saying like, there is a greater force that has decided to set me on a path. And Daenerys is leaning on her destiny to convince herself that going into this headfirst right now, even if it means, like, even if she has to ignore all the warnings that Varys has given her in this episode, it's the right thing to do because there's a there's a higher power making sure that it's happening. And... The higher power is not something tangible or something that she believes in necessarily, like the Lord of Light or whatever, but it's something. Mm. Something is pushing her there, and her dream, the longer she leaves it, she knows that the longer she leaves it, John, the information about John is going to spread. It's going to get out. Like, And it's. I think that it's about trying to step on that information and secure something before that information destroys it and i think it's about trying to secure the dream before everything about john and becomes true for for more than just eight or nine people and it's it's one of those where again i feel frightened of daenerys in this episode i feel frustrated with her but Hmm. i feel very sympathetic that if you are told all of your life that there are people drinking secret toasts to your health across the narrow sea and we're the, you know, you're the rightful heir to the Iron Throne and you're this and you're that and you're special and then you come out of a, a fire with dragon eggs and you have dragons and, like, you give birth to magical creatures that no one's ever seen before that's currently living and you amass these massive armies and you go, you know, you fall in love with someone who just happens to be related to you that you'd never met before and you're, you feel like you're star-crossed lovers and, like, you go and save a continent from ice demons and stuff like that and you're gonna start to think like it has to be now because if it's not now when and it's a lot of people said that the writing with Daenerys in this episode was like I I, I do think a lot of people wanted to say the quiet part loud and basically just accuse Benioff and Weiss of flat out sexism and misogyny yeah but this is where I mentioned this. Uh, this is why I mentioned this when, with regards to Battle of the Bastards, which is like, like feminism isn't in TV isn't just when good things happen to women and they're strong and powerful and don't need no man and stuff like that. Like that's you know I mm-hmm. you know it's female characters deserve better representation in the sense that they should be given more complicated conflicts and they should be given as much 
time for scrutiny and analysis and such as male characters would. And I think Daenerys gets a lot of screen time in this episode and we just oh, spend time watching her go through all the machinations and all of the mental processes that are required in this kind of scenario where she feels like her dream is vanishing and she has to press a button to stop it from vanishing. And the stuff at Dragonstone, there is a real darkness to the stuff at Dragonstone that I adore this week. Yeah. As much as I wish there was totally. an episode break beforehand, I really like the stuff at Dragonstone this week. Not so much the stuff that happens in the sky above Dragonstone, <laughs> but, no. but the stuff actually on the island is is, uh, is is very, very good. Yeah, you can't go wrong with Tyrion and Varys. No, apart from when they're making dwarven unit jokes, but there's oh, none God. of those anymore. We don't have time for those. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a monster. I know this. I know this because I've seen it. You've always loved your children. More than yourself. More than Jamie. More than anything. I beg you. If not for yourself, then for your child. Rain is over, but that doesn't mean your life has to end. Doesn't mean your baby has to die. Back at Winterfell, Jamie learns of Cersei and Euron ambushing Daenerys' fleet and departs for King's Landing, leaving a devastated Brienne behind. In King's Landing, Euron reports the ambush to Cersei, who claims to be pregnant with Euron's child. Cersei then instructs Kyburn to leave the gates of the Red Keep open to the common people, making them something of a human shield in an attempt to deter an assault from Daenerys. It's then revealed that Missandei was captured during the ambush at sea, uh, and Daenerys arrives outside the walls of King's Landing to parley with Cersei. Tyrion offers terms of surrender, but Cersei refuses and instead offers terms of surrender to Daenerys. Cersei then instructs the Mountain to execute Missandei, whose final words are Dracarys. And Missandei's execution enrages and horrifies Daenerys and Grey Worm, who take their armies back to Dragonstone and prepare for war. So, yeah, we will start back at Winterfell, where the news of what's just gone down over Dragonstone gets back to Winterfell. Jamie hears about it, and things happen. So, what do you make of what happens with Jamie and Brienne again in this episode? Again. I'm very surprised to find out that people didn't like Jamie leaving to go south and be with Cersei again. Because, like, first of all, he's felt totally out of place at Winterfell from the minute he arrived, whether he realised that or not. But besides that, and more importantly, he's always been two sides of the same coin. He's always been Dr. Jamie and Mr. Lannister. He's always been light and dark, a good man and a hateful man. And he left King's Landing in the first place, partly because, well, he disagreed with Cersei on her Night King stance, but also, we assume, because he wanted to protect Cersei and her unborn child. Like, this was always going to happen, surely. Well, once again, it's wonderful that you have taken away the the, the conclusion that I also took away from this episode at the time. And I remember, like, looking at the reaction to this episode, and I'm like, what the fuck? 
Like, yeah. I have always, again, now I feel like I can finally open up and really talk about this now because I've been holding back, but I have always equated Jamie's love for Cersei and Cersei's love for Jamie as well to addiction. It's yeah. not healthy, but they can't move past it. Like, they are mm. two children who fell in love with each other and have always just wanted the rest of the world to disappear. You know, Jamie's always been like, at the start of season six, he's like, fuck everyone else who isn't us. We're going to take everything back. It's all ours. No one else matters. It's just it's just us. No one else matters. It's just me and you. Like, they want like this cradle of, like, they just want to be children again. They want to protect each other. It's always been that way. And I always imagine that, like, Jamie's turn in this episode is no different to Theon's turn in season seven, episode two, where it's this road to recovery that has a sudden relapse and where Theon had the chance to jump into the sea and think about his error of his ways and things like that. Jamie doesn't have that water to jump into. He has the option to just go back to this sa- the, the safety and security of, of Cersei. And I always wonder with these people where like, if there is someone who's really struggling with like addiction and stuff like that, and they've had, hmm. they've made great progress and then they have a sudden relapse. Do like, they, they like pop out of a hole in the ground and say like, think about your character arc. Like, yeah. no, you wouldn't do that. And so, yeah, no. you are totally right. The, the thing I love about Game of Thrones is that not many of the characters have traditional linear journeys from one thing to another thing. I think maybe Theon's about the closest you get, but it's a bumpy road. It's a really bumpy road. And Oh, yeah. What makes Game of Thrones characters more fascinating to me is that just like you said there, they're always caught between two things. Like with yeah. with John, it's love and duty. With Cersei, it's children and power. With Tyrion, it's been his hatred and his love for the people of King's Landing. With Daenerys, it's been about fairness and tyranny. And with <laughs> yeah. with with Jamie, it's Cersei and everybody else and Jamie's always been caught with this and he's always been caught between I suppose it's honour and Cersei and the Cersei side has won out in this occasion because it's who he's always been you don't have to go back that far to hear him threaten to catapult a child into a castle wall to get back to to Cersei, like you don't have exactly. to go back that far, and no, it's what he says. Like you know, I killed my cousin. I would have killed everybody in Riverrun if it meant I could get back to Cersei. And for it to be a surprise to people that he would go back is very odd. Like very very odd. I think. There, I think one of the, as much as I do think that Game of Thrones should have given itself a bit more time in the closing stages in order for people to digest these difficult, you know, difficult character turns. That mm-hmm. um, like a lot of characters in this episode make like they they choose the wrong path. I think this episode is all about the characters choosing the wrong path, and. Jamie chooses the wrong path and it's difficult to accept. And I think when you see him have sex with Brienne and then suddenly leave in the same episode, it, it, it complicates things and it's very up and down. But I think that there 
is also a disconnect between the characters who are actually in the show that Benioff and Weiss are writing and the characters that the audience imagines in their head. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were just in flat denial that Jamie would ever do something like this. And I think that that's where the anger comes from. It's not a character assassination. No, it's just not a at character all. caught between two things who we thought he was going to pick on her, but he didn't. He just went back to the safety of the childhood incestuous fucked up relationship that he started with when he was a kid. And and the, the and the other major point of contention after this episode was that Brienne cried. People were angry about Brienne crying. Like, how yeah, dare you would... make a big, strong woman cry? Oh, a big, strong woman not allowed to have feelings. I, d- I didn't know this. Exactly. Like, it's yeah, probably, where did this it's come prob- from? <laughs> I, just, I just have no idea. I think, that, again, it's this idea that, like, people seem to have this very, as you put it to me in a message, a very 2016 reading of how you're <laughs> supposed to write women on TV, where it's like... Yep. A woman crying on TV, it's like... I think it's like people sometimes, they get obsessed with, like... The Bechdel test is just a thing to apply to a piece of work. It's not a barometer of whether it's good or not. Like, no. And having Brienne cry over a man, it's, it, 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 it's, it's not just crying over a man. It's crying over the fact that you thought you could save somebody from the pit of despair. You sleep with him and you yep. think... I've, I've I've done it. I've pulled him to the light side. He knighted me. We've saved the world together. And then you just get that little piece of information about an ex-partner. And it's like, oh my God, he's thinking about her. And it's like, oh my God, I thought I could save him. My best friend, someone I really thought that I could have a happy life with, he's just turned around to me and said, I am hateful and you were never the one. And it's not just the fact that He's led her on a bit. Yep. It's the fact that she's tried to save him and knows that she can't. It's the fact that she's let her guard down for the first time and it wasn't enough. Yeah. It's it, it it's, would destroy it's fucking you. Harrowing. You would cry, yes. Yeah, and Gwendolyn Christie in the last three episodes has added multiple layers to Brienne that we've never seen before. We've seen Absolutely. her smile and cry when she's always been this very stoic. Like, yeah. the, the emotion's yeah. always been there, under the eyes, but she's never let any of it out. And in this past two or three episodes, she's really let it out. And the response was, how dare you make her cry? Like, are you she's joking? Bef- Didn't she cry over, um... What's the name? Renly. Uh, yeah, she cried over Renly, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, just, yeah. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Ugh. But anyway, where Jamie's going, that's where we're mm-hmm. going. So we finally see Cersei for the first time in... I think it's the longest she's ever been out of Game of Thrones. Yeah, probably. It's two hours and 20 minutes. That's episode two and three. And then another 40 minutes of this episode. So like three hours of Game of Thrones have gone by with no Cersei at all. Yeah. And was this yeah. was this around the time she was doing Fighting with My Family by any chance? <laughs> That's a decent movie. I, I like that movie. Uh, it's Fighting right. with My Family. Um, I'm not sure. I think that if there's one overall criticism of the final season of Game of Thrones that I tend to agree with, it's that I think that Lena Headey is a star, and I don't think she, she gets given the amount of time that a star deserves. 
that's true, but uh, I like also there's not really a place for her in the previous two episodes. I don't think. Uh, no, this is why can, I would have extended this one. This is why I would have extended this one to give her just another one. Um, yeah, bit more time. But anyway, um, she's back. It's been far too long, um, but. It's not a not a happy place for Cersei at the moment, King's Landing. No. How are you feeling about Euron slobbering all over her and Cersei lying to him about the the, <laughs> the fact that he's the apparently the father of her child? I mean, I was going to raise questions about that. So it is just her flat lying to him. Yeah. Um. She was pregnant with Jamie's child in season seven, and she's pretending that it's Euron's. Okay. Well. I suppose, given what we know about Jamie now, it'd be interesting to see how that progresses and mm. obviously how her... Because I'm sure her reaction, like in in season four, I think, when he returned, it was, you know, it wasn't immediately positive. It wasn't like, oh, welcome back. I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I missed you. It was kind of like, where the fuck have you been? Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. And And now, given that, you know, he walked out in... Slightly more hostile circumstances this time could be a little bit tricky. I wonder if there's maybe like a standoff <laughs> waiting to happen there with Euron. Cool. All right then. Um, so the parlay. Um, yeah. This was it. One last chance to avoid the inevitable, and it's gone. Cersei, Kyburn, the Mountain, Daenerys, and Missandei. Actually, they all see that. Like we're we're Tyrion, and. Like we we we're we're Tyrion in that situation, while everyone around him is like, no, we're we're ready for war. Like Kyburn's like, hmm, yeah, children screaming, not that nice. Anyway, I'm just a mouthpiece for Cersei. What have you got to say for yourself? And like, they, everybody's kind of everybody there has kind of made their minds up, and Tyrion's trying to act as mediator, but Tyrion has got his head fully in the sand at this point about oh like, god yeah what totally. he can actually do um, and. Yeah, it just it gets taken away from him. Like, like a lot of characters forget their best selves in this episode, and they all, mm. like I say, they all choose the worst option for themselves, for the realm, like for absolutely everybody. And I think that this episode is the legacy of like not just the War of the Five Kings, but like just the inherent desire for conflict. Like, I think this episode yeah. really lets Arya down. Like, from, from the previous episode, I think Aya really gets let down in this episode. Definitely. Um, yeah, she she saved humanity and we're back to scowling at each other. Um, yep. Yeah. So, what did you make of what went down here? Yeah, with the parlay scene, like you say, um, like I feel like Tyrion is completely demoralised from his experiences with Daenerys, where... He's just, like, not necessarily chosen the wrong option, but has been outsmarted and outmaneuvered time and time again. And all the blame has been heaped on him. It's not like some of the blame, it's all of it. It's your bad planning. You maybe shouldn't be the hand. And, like, God bless him for trying, but it's one of those where you'd think he'd learned by now that he's not going to get far trying to reason with Cersei and especially not by trying to urge her to let go of power, which is the one thing we know she really wants other than children. But, 
Yeah, it's it's like you'd think he'd know that, but also is this just that his his energy and confidence has been completely sapped and this is what he's coming up with off the cuff. There's no plan here. It, it is just trying to sort of engage with Cersei's base instinct and failing. Like Cersei, she kind of go it's like she almost she almost has the bows aimed squarely at them and she, she could take them out there and then if she really wanted to. But she realises, you know what? No, I'd rather prolong this experience. I would rather make it more enraging and unhappy for them. So why kill all of them when I can just kill one of them in front of them and I can just let the body sort of slip down to the floor where they can see it crash in real time and you know what the best part about this is it's their good friend and their good ally who they've known for quite a long time that'll get them because yeah that's what Cersei does she knows she knows exactly how to get to someone's core the way Tyrion doesn't necessarily he thinks he does but as we see here it kind of falls on deaf ears yeah there's a lot of expressions from Cersei though in this scene that just makes me think that like she feels like this is something that she has to do there, yeah. are, there are moments where weakness just travels across her face and then she goes ahead with the the order to do something terrible anyway and like she can mm. hear Tyrion and she's listening to him and she knows that he's kind of right but like whatever was left of Cersei's core is just kind of protected by this veneer of power, must have power. Like, it's all power. This whole scene is just power and vengeance personified. Everybody's got some beef with someone over something. And it's like Cersei and Daenerys don't even have any kind of... They don't have anything to fall out over. It's just that Daenerys wants something that Cersei has. Like, they've never done anything. They've never personally wronged each other before you know and but but then Cersei does with Missandei taking out Daenerys's best friend and the tragedy of this scene is that Cersei and Daenerys have been contrasted really well ever since season five even yeah. though they've been at opposite ends of the story they've found themselves in very similar situations like in season five they both struggle to rule over a city and as it as it kind of it becomes unruly underneath them, and then at the end of season five they both get captured, and then in season six they both burn something down, in order to get free, and be powerful, and since then it's been it's gone off a little bit, but they have the chance to see eye to eye. They had it in the season seven finale. They've had it here and. They've missed it. It's gone. This 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 episode is the last chance to stop, and not enough of the characters are interested in stopping. Like yeah. even John, who would prefer something like like a war again, not to happen. He's very passive in this episode, and he's been passive the whole season actually, up to now. Like I think that's where my this is why this is why I love John in this season because they he's he's been very very passive up to this point. It's kind of like everything's out of his control and he's not really been the hero to try to wrestle it back. He's just sort of been like, oh, I'm just gonna do 
what Daenerys wants. Like, yep, she wants to go to war tomorrow. We're going to go to war tomorrow. Like, we're just going to walk down. Like, you know, Sam wants to tell me all this information. Fine. Like, I feel like I need to tell Sansa and Arya. Think I'm going to do that. Yep, the information might ruin mine and Daenerys' relationship, but I'm feeling a bit weird about it anyway. I'll just tell them. And I think that there's lots of chances for characters to say no and they don't say no they just because they're being driven by pettiness Mm. and vengeance and this they all want something for themselves in a way and even misande this sweet innocent translator who was a former slave always very lovely who you know two seasons ago was sat there drinking wine for the first time as a as a free person who wanted to drink wine and was saying more jokes more jokes <laughs> even in a moment like this she says to Daenerys Dracaris like make sure you get these fuckers and yeah. it's like everyone's had enough and they've been pushed to this point this is the point where the balloon has to pop and well, whatever happens next will happen next. And I feel like Amelia Clark's walk out of this episode is awesome. It's like the way that she holds herself like she's walking on stilts while she spins around and walks away with that look on her face. It's like... Yeah. yeah. That is the face of someone who has given everything and not had a lot in return. She's got that vein about to blow look. You know, like Mo has in that. Yeah, in that, that great episode, episode of The Simpsons, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like you've got the stink lines and everything. Bart sells his soul. That's the one. Yes. That's the one. Thank you. Yeah. Everybody go and watch it a second time if you've already seen it and go and watch it for a first time if you haven't. Um, oh, yes. But yeah, if you have... Did you have any more notes about this episode? No, it's, it's an exhausting journey, isn't it? And we're not at the end yet. <laughs> No, no, we are not. Uh, Okay, so what's your line of the episode? My line of the episode is actually one word. It's Dracaris. Yeah, it's good delivery from Natalie Emmanuel. She's been been another like Gilly. A presence you don't forget, even if they're not always there. Yeah, I didn't do my little farewell bit, actually. But yeah, farewell to Miss Andy. Um... Like you say, she she was always she was always there, and the show is gonna feel a little bit less without her. So, who is your loser this week? My loser of the week is Cersei Lannister. Yeah, I think that she's the one who has the chance to stop things from happening, and she decides not to. So, <laughs> she, yeah, she definitely chooses violence this yeah. week. Yes, and your winner. My winner this week. Is kind of it's kind of a tricky one. I don't feel like anyone really wins this week, but I'm gonna say for performance alone, I'll go Brienne. It was almost Arya, but like, yeah, they didn't give her much to do. Okay then, all right then. We will be back next week for season eight, episode five, The Bells. And Lizzie, I think we're gonna watch this one together, aren't we? Yes, we are. So um, yeah forward to that and we'll see you later see ya